Please join me again in prayer this morning as we begin. Father, guide our minds and our hearts now into your word. Your word is truth. And by your word and by your truth alone can we be sanctified and made right in your sight. And so, Father, bless the means of grace which you have given to us, that being the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of your word now to your ultimate honor and glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles this morning now to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and verses 1 through 4 this morning. And you may notice that the sermon title is a sermon for confidence. And you may hear the text and wonder why that is, but I hope to explain that to you this morning a little in a little more detail so that you leave full of confidence. We read this, After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, Blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And some of you just discovered why we need to talk about confidence in your Bibles this morning. The sermon that the Lord brings us to in this text this morning is one that presents a unique opportunity, one that I'm eager to take advantage of and to talk with you about. And so, admittedly, this may feel like part sermon and then part lesson as we move towards the end of it, but I, my prayer is that it's ultimately beneficial to you, and in the long run and in the final analysis of our time together this morning, that you leave here this morning with confidence in your Bibles, confidence in the Word of God. Now, I say that about confidence, and I say that some of you probably recognized what is transpiring this morning. Because depending on what version of the Bible sits on your lap this morning, you heard or saw three very different things. Some of you saw the first four verses of this chapter read with no difference. It reads just like every other part of the Bible. Some of you saw in your Bibles this morning that the last half of verse 3 and all of verse 4 are in brackets. And some of you got halfway through verse 3 and thought I'd lost my mind. Because there is no 3B nor verse 4. It's just gone. And so it, it gives us reason to talk about why that is the reality. And so this morning, I want us to just simply begin by picking up the text from last week at the end of chapter 4. And now moving into chapter 5. And discovering the truths and the background that are in verses 1 and 2. And then move into something of an explanation in verses 3 and 4. And so I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, the setting that the Word of God presents to us. Remember, Jesus has come back into Galilee here at the end of 
chapter 4. And he has healed the nobleman's son. He's brought great mercies into this young man's life. His father believes as a result of that. And now Jesus continues his progression of moving into opposition. Last week we talked about the undaunted determination of Jesus to accomplish his mission to save sinners. The only explanation we have this morning for why any of us are here because of Jesus' determination to save us. And yet as Jesus leaves that, we find that Jesus is increasingly moving into the heart of Judea, all the way to Jerusalem, the very seed of resistance against him. He is going to face the the most harsh, leading to his own death, the most harsh opposition that we could imagine. And so coming into that framework that Jesus knowingly is headed into opposition, we find him coming to Jerusalem at a certain feast. Now, we're not told what feast this is. But as you're reading your Bibles, know this, that where the Bible names the feast, it's important. Because each feast uh, signified something different, and it relates to what's going on in the text. And yet here, it's a nondescript feast. It could be any one of a number of feasts that were observed at the heart of the life of Judaism there in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the seat of the Pharisees. It's the seat of the Sanhedrin. It's the seat of the Sadducees. This is, this is the place where all of the religious opposition to Jesus is centered. And if Jesus is seeking to avoid confrontation, this is certainly not how you do it. If, if Jesus is wanting to go through life and just win as many friends as possible and not rock the boat, you don't go to Jerusalem in order to do that. And yet here's where we find our Lord. It's not accidental, it's not coincidental, and it's not by mere chance. Jesus goes, as you will attest by your own testimony for those of you who know the Lord, Jesus goes where he's needed. Jesus goes where he has opportunity to shine in the darkness of sin the brokenness of this world and certainly as we read along in verse 3 at the very beginning of that we find no shortage of people who clearly need a touch from the hand of the God who made them and so Jesus strategically chooses not only the place but he chooses the time he chooses a time when Jerusalem was more crowded than normal Everybody from around the nation is seeking now to enter the walls of the old city and enter the walls of Jerusalem in order to participate in this feast, whatever feast it is. And so Jesus has a larger than normal audience in which to demonstrate his mercy, in which to demonstrate his grace, and also upon which to annoy his enemies, with the truth. So Jesus comes at this strategic time to a strategic audience, one who had come to a large audience, and he begins to do his work. Now I want you to make some notes about the place this morning because the place is not insignificant in creating confidence in the Bible, the Bible that you hold. 
There's been some uncertainty uh, enumerated by scholars over the past as to where exactly this occurred. But the text is very clear, isn't it? It says, now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. And if you know anything about Middle Eastern uh, geography and archaeology, you know this, that uh, those cities exist in what are known as tells. It's, the word tell means a hill or the burial of one city and the raising of another city on top of it. And so that's why we're constantly finding things as archaeologists go to Israel and they begin to dig and things that have been denied and, and, and doubted in the past are discovered because we peel back one layer of that tell of that onion and there underneath is the proof that God's word is accurate and true. And so while some have doubted this place called the Sheep Gate, we know from Nehemiah chapter 3 that there has always been this place. We read in Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 1, Then Eliashib the priest, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priest, and built the Sheep Gate. And they consecrated it and hung its doors. Verse 32, Between the upper room of the corner and the Sheep Gate. The goldsmiths and the merchants carried out repairs, verse 39, and above the gate of Ephraim, the old gate, by the fish gate, the tower of Henanel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate. And so John is simply telling us that there is a well-known gate in his day, one that dates back to the time of Nehemiah, and yet in time and in over the, the, the blowing sands of the Middle East, that part of the old city had been buried until not so long ago when an excavation began. And what did they find? They found a little gate, a little tiny gate that sheep could come in and out of. And next to that gate, two pools. Two pools surrounded by five colonnades, five porticos. That, that give credence to exactly what John has said. It was there all along. The problem wasn't with the Bible. The problem was with the sand. But as soon as it's excavated, we find that God's word is true. And so this place even tells us now, knowing what we know now, that this is a reliable story. This is historically accurate and true. There was a place there. The name is from Hebrew translated into the Greek or transliterated and then into the English is Bethesda. It means the house of outpouring. It's a place where these people believe that God would pour out certain benefits and certain blessings to them. And while these pools not only have been excavated and proven to be true as legitimate sources of dwelling that John mentions here in John chapter 5. We also have learned that they are accurate according to the Old Testament as to their feeding. They feed off of Solomon's pools and underground streams that uh, turn over at certain times of the year. And when those heavily mineralized streams would turn over, you would have a reddish quality that would happen within the water. Some of us here in West Texas, we know what that's like. There are certain times of the year when the water here in Midland starts to smell like a lake. It's not pleasant. That's then followed by the 
odor of chlorine trying to clean up the lake smell. And that's all brought about as just certain natural things occur within lakes. Lakes turn over and lakes change the the, the strata of the water and so forth. And that is the same thing that we know now has happened in these pools. They've been fed by streams that at certain times of the year turn over and stir up minerals. Now we know from verse 4 and then again from following verses that these people ascribe that with their without a lack of science and knowledge and understanding as to the way the things work they attribute it to what an angel has done this remember the, this is pre-modern times this is a time of great superstition in the world which existed by the way up until really about the 1700s people had Bizarre ideas when just natural occurrences would happen, they would ascribe it to some supernatural phenomenon, a demon, a ghost, an angel. I'll give you an example you may find somewhat humorous. The reformer Martin Luther had a pond or a little lake out behind his home. And he would never visit the lake because he was convinced that if you threw a rock or stirred the water in any way, that there were, there were demonic spirits trapped in that water that would then be released. And we can laugh at Luther about that, and we can poke fun at Luther about that, but Luther was a man of his time, born into the superstition of medieval Europe. And so it's hard to find fault with these people, isn't it? They don't know what they don't know. And yet they're convinced enough to know that they do certain things based on what they think is true. Look at the text in verse 3. Around these pools that we now know were were there, we now know that that John is tremendously accurate in his description. But in this superstition, people tend to congregate. Those who are sick, those who are blind, those who are lame, and those who are withered. This is a statement of fact as to what life looked like in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. They surround this pool. Jesus is here in their midst now in chapter 5. And he doesn't go to the Pharisees' school. He doesn't go to the temple. Where does Jesus go? He goes again where there is demonstrable need. He goes to these pools where these poor people so trapped in their superstition are lying there waiting to be the first one into the water because if you ain't first you're last and if you're last you don't get anything and so they are there trying to get into the water as soon as they see the first glint of red stirring These people have been saturated by error. Again, it's hard to be too hard on them. They're people of their time. They're people without an understanding scientifically of how these things work. They're people who are largely illiterate, whose religious leaders were happy to continue to keep them in the dark, much as the Roman Catholic Church did up until the Reformation, in which time the Word of God was translated into the native tongue of people all over the world. It's a classic plot employed by religious 
false teachers to keep you in the dark and to keep you coming to them so that you get all of your information from them so that they then control you. These people are susceptible to that. They're largely illiterate, if statistics tell us anything about the people of that day. Even if they were literate enough to read, no one owned copies of the scriptures for themselves, or very, very, very few did. So expensive and so rare. They, they were housed only in the synagogues and in the temple. And so these people are needy. These people are without assurance. They are without confidence other than what they've been told by tradition. And Jesus comes into that kind of a dark situation. He comes into that darkness. And not only does he come into the darkness of superstition and the darkness of their desire to be healed, he comes into the darkness of first century Jewish Gnosticism where angels held a high place, where where mysterious happenings were attributed to these spiritual realms divorced from things physical. This is what Paul has to contend with in the book of Colossians. The Colossian heresy that he addresses is in some part first century Jewish Gnosticism that believed matter was evil, spirit was good, and that angels had this abnormally strong control over the spiritual realm. These people, no doubt, have drunk the poison from that way of thinking as well. The result is this, they lay around waiting for this supposed visitation and healing of an angel. These people are, in other words, waiting in their spiritual darkness not only pained by their ailments but pained by the reality that they have not been first into the water for some time and they wait and they wait and they wait and it never happens so as they wait without confidence Jesus comes to them, and as we'll get into as the text goes on, Jesus comes to bring them great confidence that the power is not in the water. The power is not in the angel. The power is in him. And it's not power for physical healing primarily. It is power for spiritual healing. So as we come to that point this morning, now we arrive at the end of verse 3 and verse 4. And again, I've already explained to you that, that as... If you were here, I think I, I, I have a pretty good grasp on what you all read. And so I understand that those three realities are present this morning as you hold your Bibles on your lap. I want to talk to you now about those brackets or about those words that are missing in your Bible this morning. And that's the challenge before me. And so now I kind of transition away, and it may not sound as much like the sermons you're used to hearing on Sunday morning, but I do pray that it will be helpful to you. And that's the challenge this morning, is that I want you to leave not lacking confidence, but with increased confidence in your Bibles. Pastors wrestle, I will tell you this, pastors wrestle when you get to these passages. And the reason I address it this morning is this. This will not be the last time we have to deal with this in the book of John. So I want to deal with it 
first at the first opportunity I have. And so here it is this morning. But pastors dread these. I don't so much dread them. I think they're an excellent opportunity to talk about the word of God. They don't intimidate me. I don't think that that you will leave discouraged or doubting. I think you'll leave encouraged as we look at why the Bible is handled differently in different cases. And so let me jump into that this morning. So if you're reading the King James or the New King James, you, you read the entirety of that text with no warning sign at all, unless you have a particular study Bible that would give you a note to that effect, that, that something may be different here. So King James or New King James, it just flows as normal. If you're reading a New American Standard or a Legacy Standard Bible, then you see brackets and there may be others that I'm missing, but you see brackets around the, these portions of Scripture. If you're reading the ESV, the English Standard Version, or the NIV, the New International Version, they are not there at all. That's just not there. And, and you may be saying, why is that? Well, here's the reason. Every English Bible has a Greek Bible or a Hebrew Bible underlying that English translation. In other words, they got the English from the Greek or they got the English from the Hebrew and we have different groups of Hebrew and Greek manuscripts that exist in order to be translated into English today. So I want to present to you a twofold challenge. Number one, can you trust your English Bible? And there are exceptions where I would say no. Because it's a bad translation based off of a bad underlying text. But the ones that I've mentioned, can you trust them? I'll say yes, absolutely. You can, you can trust what your Bible says, absolutely. And you're saying, well, why do you, wait a minute, what about the differences? Shouldn't that say, well, that depends on which one you're reading. And then you tell us exactly what we have to do. No, nope, that's not how this is going to work. What we're dealing with this morning is not issues of reliability. What we are dealing with are issues of translation and transmission. And so for that, each of you received in your bulletins this morning a handout. And so would you pull out that little handout this morning? On one side, you'll see this chart that I put together a number of years ago to just help visually understand where our Bibles come from. And then on the reverse side are just kind of a statistical chart that I'll get into towards the end of the time together this morning. But I want you to keep it to the one side that has the purple box at the top that says God's divine wisdom. And we'll start there. Again, I'm saying to you that the the challenge before us this morning is not one of reliability. It is one of translation and transmission of the scripture down through the ages. Our belief in scripture rests in this. That we know the author of scripture. We know the author of scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says this. All scripture is breathed out or inspired by God. We have confidence in the reliability of Scripture this morning because we know who said it. 
It's not me saying it. It's not you saying it. It's not some great personality in church history who said it. We believe God spoke. And like anything else in life, the words or the promise is only as good as the one making it, right? I can tell you, you know, I'm king of Persia. But it doesn't mean anything. Because I'm not. But God, the the author of all truth and the author of all wisdom, is so because he is truth and he is wisdom. So when we read that God breathed out, you can take it to the bank that whatever is breathed out is truth. There, There is no error in God. All scripture from beginning to end is inspired by God and is profitable. That's another important key. The source of truth and then the effect of truth. Is it profitable? Profitable for what? For teaching, for, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. What do those four things mean? Number one, it tells us what is right. Number two, it tells us what is wrong. Number three, it tells us how to take something wrong and make it right. And number four, it tells us how to keep it right. The word of God is profitable for all of those things because God said it. And God cannot say anything other than that which is 100% true. The end of that, according to Paul in 2 Timothy 3 verse 17, is that the man of God, all of us, may be perfect or mature or adequate, prepared for every good work. Again, Scripture's source, Scripture's effect. We go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. We didn't make it up. We didn't come up with it. Rather, it came about as men were moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God. That's where your Bible comes from. That's why I can say, can I, can I trust my Bible on my lap this morning? I say, absolutely. You know why? We know where it came from. And there are many proofs that we could go to and don't have time completely this morning, but I'd be happy to talk with you further about that if that's a question you have. There are many infallible proofs that this indeed is unique, the only one of its kind, the word from God on your lap this morning. We believe and we have confidence not only in the source and the effect of truth, but we have confidence in the infallibility of it as well. Why? Again, because of the author, Titus 1-2, we have the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, <coughs> promised long Ages ago, John 17, 17, I mentioned this earlier. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer before his father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8, we then go from trustworthiness of source, of effect, of infallibility, but in preservation as well. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, listen to this. The grass withers, the flower fades, 
But the word of our God stands forever. Not until somebody discovers something better. Not until something is unearthed in the field of linguistics. The word of God has been spoken and it will stand forever. 1 Peter 1.23 For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. We have a more sure word because of its source, because of its effect, because of its infallibility, and because of God's promise that his word would endure forever. Isaiah 59, 21, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring. Thus says the Lord, from now and forever. How long will God's word endure? Forever. How long is eternity? Eternity. I don't know. We can't quantify that. But this much we know. The word of God will endure forever. As long as eternity is, that's how long the word of God will endure. And it will not only endure, it will not even diminish. It can't be lost. And we'll get to that in a minute. But that's why you can say with absolute confidence, yes, I can trust what is on my lap this morning because the word of God cannot even be lost. David in Psalm 119, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Verse 152, of old, I have known your testimonies that you founded them forever Verse 160, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. How long? Forever. Everlasting truth breathed by an everlasting God. That's why it's everlasting, because of its source, because of its author. And so upon the source of scripture, the giving of scripture, the promise that we have in scripture, we can rest that God has given us his word. Now, the second challenge that we face this morning as we look at this text, we've, we've broadly answered the question, can we trust it? The answer is yes, undeniably. But why? Why can you trust it? I don't want you to leave here this morning saying, well, Brian says we should trust it. We should just trust it. Because ours is not an irrational or blind faith. Ours is a completely logical and rational faith that that we can defend. We we can go to the courtroom, as it were, and put the word of God on trial and know that with all confidence, it will come out victorious when critics have come against it. And they have since the very beginning, since Genesis 3. Did God really say? Oh, yeah, God said. And here's proof. We're all living proof of that. We're all living in the midst of the fall. Why? Because God meant what he said. It was true. And so what makes this so? I want to answer that for you this, this morning. I want to answer that question. So if you'll look at your chart this morning, 
I want to enter into a part where we talk about the process of how we came to have the Word of God in order to answer the why. How can we know? This is true this morning. I want you to note some important terms, and to some of you these will be familiar, to others maybe less familiar, but for all of us it will be good to talk about these terms. Number one is the term inerrant. When God's divine wisdom spoke to the authors, and I mean the original authors of Scripture, the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles in the New Testament, or their understudies to whom they oversaw when God spoke to them. So from that purple box to the next box, when God spoke to them, he spoke with absolute 100% inerrancy. What does the word inerrancy mean? The word inerrancy is a technical term, but it refers to the giving of all scripture without any error whatsoever in the original giving of those words. So think of Paul, think of Moses, think of Isaiah, think of James, think of Peter, think of Mark, think of Luke, think of Hosea, all of the authors of Scripture. When God spoke to them, he spoke 100% without error, and they wrote without error. So that in the giving of scripture, in the, in the giving of the word of God, it has no error. That's important for you to believe. That's important for you to know. And why can we know this? Again, because of source, because of effect, because of infallibility, because of preservation. We know that the word of God is truth and nothing but truth. It is without error. Now, I want you to notice something, and this, on the right side of your page, the authors of Scripture, the original authors, wrote with true or technical inerrancy. Down to the letter of the law, what that means, they wrote completely, without error, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, Do those original copies exist today? The answer is no. Why? Because of time, because of decay, because of destroying certain things. But we do have copies of the originals, don't we? And copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. And I won't go into how many copies because nobody really knows. It's that many of them. We have the copies that have been made of the men who wrote under divine inspiration, inerrant words of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it possible that a copyist could make a mistake? And the answer is yes. How many of you have ever written something down wrong? I do, it, I do it all the time. I, I, I think I, seriously, I don't know if this is a thing. I hope I'm coining it and can somehow profit off of it. I think I have numeric dyslexia. I don't do it with letters, but I do it with numbers. I flip them all the time. So when I'm trying to balance my checkbook, inevitably the eraser comes out multiple times because I flip numbers. Is it, is it possible that we make mistakes when we copy? Yeah, Absolutely. 
it's possible that we make mistakes. So what we speak of in true or technical inerrancy without any error at all are the originals. But then we move, if you'll notice on the right side, we move to what we're going to call practical inerrancy or applied inerrancy. That God will protect his word against error. Now, I can tell you this. Nothing has been directly inspired by God past what the original authors of Scripture wrote. Now, that, that's a heresy that's long been condemned in the church known as double inspiration. That every time a publisher gets the idea to go back and revise or do a new translation, somehow they get inspired. That's not true. God inspired Paul, God inspired Moses, God inspired those men, but no one passed them. You get into that and you can start saying God told you anything. That's a place you don't want to be. And so we believe in the inspiration of the original authors to make the the original autographs without error. And then men began to translate those documents so that others could have them. And we're so thankful that they've done that. And yet we know that because of human error, things happen. Mistakes can be made, especially in in the Hebrew, where the little flick of a pen at the end of a letter can change the entire meaning of the word. The, The ending on a Greek verb can be so easily confused. One letter difference. Are humans capable of copying that down wrong? Yes. A hundred percent. And then, so that's inerrancy without error. Now, infallibility is another word you need to know. And for, for really up until the 1960s, the word infallible and the word inerrant could be used interchangeably. When we said one, we meant the other and vice versa. But liberal scholars came along in the 1960s under postmodernism and they began to tinker with words so that they could say this. We believe in infallibility, but they would not say they believed in inerrancy. Or if they did, they believed in a limited inerrancy. And here's why you can say that, or they can say that. We should never say that. Why they can say that. They can say that for this reason. They say the outcome of the word of God can never lead us into error. But there could be error in the words themselves. There could be a problem with inerrancy. But don't worry, the end result's the same. As long as you get the big idea and it's true, you're good. That's the idea that infallibility started to go towards. So we have had to go to say, we believe in inerrancy. And guess what? If you believe in inerrancy, you get what? Infallibility. If it's perfect, then you're going to be led into perfection. But the reverse is not true. I can say I can believe in an infallibility that the end result will work out, but not necessarily that the actual giving of it was without error. That was liberal scholarship. 1979, 100 men met, of whom two are alive today. That's kind of crazy. One of them is John MacArthur. They're in their 80s and 90s now. But only two men survived from the Chicago Council on Inerrancy or conference on inerrancy in 1979, and they penned a document pushing back against liberal theology and defending the inerrancy of Scripture. And here's what Article 11 reads. We affirm that Scripture, having been given by divine inspiration, 
is infallible so that far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all matters it addresses. There again, infallible because of its inerrant inspiration, right? And so we have inerrancy, we have infallibility, and we have preservation. And this is really where it comes down and the rubber meets the road for us this morning. Because when I speak of preservations, what preservation of Scripture, and we all agree that Scripture will be preserved, how long? How long? Forever. Preservation is the practical outworking of inerrancy in its true and technical form. God will not allow his word or suffer his word to be lost, harmed, or changed. Preservation will keep the word of God for us inerrantly so. It will keep its roots and its moorings to the original word of God. It will not be lost. And that's why we have confidence. Not, not because of inerrancy, not only because of infallibility, but because of preservation as well. We have all three that cause us to have that supreme confidence. So within, within those three things, inerrancy, infallibility, preservation... Let's discuss verses 3 and 4. Let's discuss verses 3 and 4. In order to do that, let me just ask you a couple of questions. We need to, let me me preface it by saying this, we need to understand what doctrine we're applying here in order to come up with a solution to why our Bibles may differ. Are we dealing with an area of inerrancy this morning? Are 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 we having to deal with inerrancy? The answer is no, not at all. We're not dealing, why? Because we don't have the autographs, the original sitting on your lap. You have a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy that's been translated, translated, translated. So it's not an inerrancy issue, okay? That's not what's at play. Is it an infallibility issue? Well, it could be. It could be an infallibility issue because some of you might be saying, well, I want all of it in there. And some of you going, well... I'm not sure if I want all of it in there. It could be an infallibility issue if what is there leads us to wrong thinking. Make sense? So let's test the last half of verse 3 and let's test verse 4 by that question. Is this truth? Well, let's look at it. An angel of the Lord goes down at certain seasons into the pool and stirs up water. Whoever then first, after stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, let me ask you a question. Somebody comes to you and they say, hey, I think I believe this about this angel who visits water, stirs it up, and first one in wins. Could you help me find that? You know, just for a second case study in Scripture, could you help me find where that occurs? Any ideas? It doesn't. Is that true that God sends angels to stir waters that we can first one in wins? Is that, tr- is that how it works? And you're all going, no. So could that lead us into erroneous thinking? Could. Could be a matter of infallibility. 
that there could be a reason that the translators are suspect of these verses because it's teaching things that scripture doesn't affirm or teach anywhere else. And that, again, this is not the only uh, place that this happens. But the church has long stood on a principle known as the analogy of faith or the an- analogy of scripture in which we say this, that scripture alone interprets scripture. Our own confession of faith, uh, chapter 1, verse or paragraph 9, the infallible rule for interpreting Scripture is the Scripture itself. Therefore, when there is a question about the true and full meaning of any other part of Scripture, and each passage only has one meaning, it must be understood in light of other passages that speak more clearly. And I've got bad news for verse 4. Nowhere else speaks to this. And the same is true in Mark chapter 16 and verse 9 and following. That too is in brackets or missing from your Bible altogether. Or maybe it's there with no markings. Why? Because Mark chapter 16, verse 9, um, I don't know how to say this kindly, but if you swallow Mark 16, some of that, you're going to end up in the hills within their snake handlers. Because it says they drink poison and they don't die. Well, let's all go drink poison. They handled snakes and didn't get bit. Let's go all handle snakes to test our faith. Is anywhere else in scripture teaching that? No, so should we be suspect? Probably so. And try to figure out why that's there and why some say it shouldn't be there and and ask some serious questions of the scripture. Is it consistent? Does it contradict even what is being taught in other portions of scripture? Could it lead to error? Yes, potentially so. So we need to ask that question. Is this a matter of infallibility? Maybe. Could be. Could be, but we'll have to see more in a moment. So now we come to the question of preservation. Is this an issue of preservation? And here's where the rub really comes in. The third doctrine we need to apply to this is the doctrine of preservation. And look at your chart again this morning. We see how it's the scriptures being handed down from generation to generation. And copies of copies of copies have been made. And there are literally thousands upon thousands of copies of scripture that date back centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries. Some over a thousand years, two thousand years. And some of these pieces are whole pieces of paper. Some of them are whole clay tablets that have been inscribed on. Some of them are copper plates that have been inscribed on. And some of them are little bitty teeny fragments like a puzzle piece that that you take and experts know, okay, this came from the same pot found in a cave somewhere. We start putting it together and they reconstruct documents. But but at best you only end up with, with one this big instead of this big. Thousands of fragments exist, and that's where the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts come from that underlie your English translation. And you know what? You're sitting there thinking, you're thinking, and how in the world could that possibly be accurate? Now, let me give you a statistic that blows my mind every time I think about it. Out of the thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of these ancient manuscripts that still exist, do you know what percentage of disagreement occurs between all of them? Less than 
100%. They all say the same thing. That's amazing. I mean, you can't get two senators to agree on what they said five minutes ago in Washington, D.C., and yet we can get an ancient document that is literally thousands of years old, uh, existing in thousands of copies, and there's less than 1% of those at any given point that disagree. Well, I've got news for you. What you see in the last half of verse 3 and verse 4, it's part of that less than 1%. That's pretty good, isn't it? In fact, I'd say it's really good. In fact, take your little handout and go over to the back now. This is crazy. This is proof that we have the word of God preserved for us today. What you have is a comparison of the New Testament in particular over and against all of these other ancient philosophers and documents. And you can see the date that these were written. And I want you to notice that if we were to add the Old Testament in here, it would be even much older, okay? By far, the oldest surviving document of any kind in existence today is the Word of God. By far. The earliest copy, I want you to see when when these early copies, where they pop up, where these fragments and where these manuscripts exist. It looks like Homer's is around 400 B.C. We've got things way older than 400 B.C., way older. The New Testament first appears A.D. 130 as far as comparing other uh, peers of its kind. It is way older, way older. Approximate time span between when it was originally written and the first copy was made. Would you look at this? 1,100 years, 750 years, 1,200, 800, 1,300. It took people that long to come up with the first copy of it. Notice how quickly scripture was copied. Less than 100 years. We're really close to the apostles, in other words. We're really close to the guys that God inspired. They started making copies immediately. Now look at how many copies survive of their original works. The closest, the closest is Homer's Iliad with 643 copies. The Bible, the New Testament, 5,600. Homer only has a 95% agreement rate in that 643 documents. Scripture, 99.5 among 5,600. Absolutely amazing. Reliability. Nothing else like it. Not even close. And I've got other charts that wouldn't have fit on this paper, but that show in even more detailed how that hands. So how did we get these verses and should we entrust ourselves to them? Well, here's why I believe God is preserving his word. And here's why I believe this has happened as people began to make copies of the scriptures, they would add out to the side little notes. Kind of like your study Bible. How many of you have a study Bible this morning? Let me see your hands. Now, do you believe for a minute that the notes at the bottom of that page are inspired? No. They're just good notes, right? They're, are they helpful at times? Sure. I, I love a good study Bible. And so as, 
as they are copying scripture and handing it down to the next generation, they started a little tradition known as gloss or addition. And they would start out by putting it in the margins. And they, they would add it in there. Not as saying it's inspired, but just saying, hey, here's a little note that helps explain something that's going on. Now, I want you to notice what is inspired in John chapter 5 this morning. We read in verse 5, a man was there. Now, this, we know this is inspired. It's in all the manuscripts. There was a man who had been ill for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition, and he said to him, do you wish to get well? And the man says, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. This man actually believes the water's going to get stirred up because he's a, he is a pre-modern, Gnostic-influenced Jewish man living there. He absolutely believes it's going to happen. And so in the earliest fragments, closest to the writing of the book of John, we find verses 3 and 4, or the last half of verse 3 and all of verse 4, out on the side in a little note. And it's explanatory of this man's statement and why he would say what he said in verse 8 or, or verse 7. They're explanatory notes. But as copies got handed down and copies got handed down, there was the addition of those study notes into the body of the text. And you can watch the development happen as the, as the documents get handed down and handed down and handed down and handed down. It makes its way into the body of the text rather than being outside in the margins as a note. And that did not happen, loved ones, until really the 1500s. And the primary manuscript that underlies the King James and the New King James was really the, is the only one who has moved it into the body of the text. And that, that text, that family, that foundation for translating those two English didn't come about until the 1500s. And so you can see the natural progression of how it happened and why it would be there. And, and so that we understand it's not wrong then to look at that and say, you know, that's suspect. Number one, it teaches something the Bible doesn't teach anywhere else that we know is not true. Angels don't come down and get in water. But it's presented as truth in verse 4. It's just presented as what the man believed in verse 7. Do you see the difference? We're actually being taught to believe it if verse 4 is really there. But if we're in verse 7, all we're doing is having explained this poor guy actually believed this. And, And so we can look at this and say, you know, Probably ought to be at least in brackets to go. It doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts closest to John writing the gospel. In fact, really doesn't appear for 1,500 years. That would make it on par with all these other books. If that's the case. And so you might be asking, how does that happen? Why does that happen? Why doesn't God stop that? I think he is. Because we have a field known as textual criticism or lower criticism where scholars are constantly checking each other's work. And they come back and in in new translations and new editions, they go, wait a minute, whoa, 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 that shouldn't be there. We need to move that back out into the margin, which is what they're doing constantly. I, I have Bible software that I use, and it's constant. I'm getting constant updates to that software, constantly updating it. Because why? They have found something that was incorrect, that's provably incorrect, and they can deal with it. 
through through updating the translation, keeping it uh, up to speed as far as proving its accuracy. Now, let me tell you this. We can rest and know that God has preserved this. And we can do it scientifically. We can do it in the manners that I've mentioned this morning. We can know that with full confidence. That that, that this should be probably in brackets were removed altogether. And ultimately we can rest in this. That God is not going to allow his word to be lost. Not one jot, not one tittle. And, and that refers to the little pen strokes I mentioned at the end of a Hebrew letter. I took Hebrew. I failed quizzes, I'm sure, because I didn't flick my pen right. It's a pain to try to write Hebrew. Some of you ladies who've tried your hand at calligraphy, it's calligraphy on steroids. It's miserable. You don't do this just right or that just right changes everything. It's highly precise. And yet God promised not one jot, not one tittle. The little strokes at the end of a letter will pass away ever. There have been times when the word of God appears to have been lost. Think about the Old Testament, Hezekiah's revival, Nehemiah. The word of God, it would appear from their vantage point, has disappeared for all time, and it's not coming back. And yet, what always comes back? The word of God. Every single time. Our Bible may have brackets. That may be God's way of saying, hey, you know what? It's time to bring the true word of God out of hiding. I'm not going to allow it to be lost. And he won't. And again, I'm thankful for men. I wouldn't want to do it, but I'm thankful for men who give their whole life to studying little fragments, putting them together, testing the the date of the material, testing where it came, testing all those nerdy, brainy kind of things that, that you and I would go to sleep over, and yet they love it. And we have the benefit of saying, you know what? Because of their hard work, we know. Because of their science, we know. We have the word of God. I grew up in a tradition that would view everything I've had said this morning as blatant heresy. That's okay. They're the same ones that are okay with putting the Apocrypha in certain translations of theirs. So I ask, which is more accurate? Well, I'd rather have science on my side. And I'd rather have theology on my side. And I'd rather have consistency of the scripture on my side than tradition. Don't let your traditions perhaps influence you in this way. Look at it objectively through the lens. Inerrancy, infallibility, preservation. That chart I gave you, I believe, can be most helpful. As it shows you how the word of God then came into the different original language groups and then into English translations and how translation philosophy uh, impacts each one of those translations. And I'll give you the ones I think are best. Because of where they come from, because of the, 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 the rigorous research that's been done into the Greek and Hebrew that underlie it, because of their translation philosophy. I think these things are all important. But we have confidence. 
So don't look at that and be let that allow you to say, oh, man, I just don't know. Maybe, well, can I trust the rest of it? Absolutely. There's a reason and a good explicable reason why it is the way it is. So I hope that helps you to, 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 to say with David, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. I don't have to fear. I don't have to worry about it. There's a reason, and it's a good reason why this has happened. And I, I can trust it. I can rest that I have the word of God on my lap this morning. And I don't have to fear that it's been lost. God will never allow his word to suffer harm nor suffer loss. So do we have the very word of God? You bet we do. You bet we do. Read it, memorize it, love it, meditate on it as such. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Men, would you come forward as we observe the Lord's table this morning before we depart. Father, your word is truth. Sanctify us now by your word. Lord, these can be just so many of Satan's ploys to create doubt in our minds. Do not let there be doubt, Holy Spirit. Help us to see that that, that we can study this book as we would other books and use the faculties of mind that you've given us and come to good and God-honoring conclusions using our minds and then be able to make informed decisions about what translation we'll use, what we will accept as inspired and preserved inerrantly and infallibly so by you. God, work in our hearts, create confidence in your people and your word. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.